Welcome to The Last Supper, your weekly podcast about art in Asia. I'm your host, Oscar Venhuis. Every weekend I sit down and release an episode bringing new perspectives and engaging dialogues with emerging and established artists, galleries, curators and collectors in Asia. Learn more about art in Asia with Christie's Education in-person and virtual art courses, gallery visits and webinars. Visit Christie's Education website and enter all in capital letters Last Supper 15 to enjoy a 15% discount. The website link and discount code for Christie's Education can also be found in the description of this podcast. Artist designer Ling Pei Ying delved into the fascinating world of viruses and how genomes offer us a look into our own past, the origin of why we believe viruses are hostile, how viruses inform her work, and how her work addresses the relationship between knitting and genomes. And finally, we talked about how humanity can benefit from the development of AI. Welcome Pei Ying, how are you today? All right. I'm just enjoying the snow here in the Netherlands, which doesn't happen that often. <laughs> oh, it's snowing in Holland. Yes, which is really rare. <laughs> that is quite rare indeed. I don't remember seeing any snow in the last few winters in Holland because you are calling from Eindhoven in the Netherlands, if I am not mistaken. Yes. So it's even more And for those people who don't know where it is, Eindhoven is a small city in South Holland. How did he end up over there from Taiwan? It was actually, it started with, I got the, an award that's called BioArt and Design Award. And that was funded by NWO, which is like the science funding, like major science funding body in the Netherlands. And it's a part of a science communication grant that they established more than 10 years program that they try to each year select three groups of artists and scientists to collaborate together on the project. And I won that award on the 2016, which allowed me to work with a virologist, Miranda Tukraf, who works at the Erasmus Medical Center on viruses. And then that's how I end up in the Netherlands. Somehow it just like one opportunity follow another. And then, yeah. And I'm doing my PhD study now in the Eindhoven University of Technology. And how far are you in your PhD research? Second year. So we officially have four years and now about halfway. What is the main domain and area that you're exploring and investigating? So I am actually currently researching into human AI creative collaboration on textile. And even though before the PhD, I'm mainly doing like things more related with human and the microbes. But in general, I always have this like human to non-human collaboration aspect. So for my research, I'm also looking at AI and also the knitting machine and the yarns as a non-human entity that you can collaborate with. Your research subject appears to be a really current topic because you began this before the media interest in generative AI. How did your interest in human and non-human collaboration and specifically artificial intelligence began? Well, actually I have a background that I major in biology for my bachelor degree, but I also have a minor in computer science and also humanity and cultural studies. 
So this is like all my practice is trying to combine everything together and being in the biofield for quite some while and just thought that it would be a good moment to also bring in the computer science aspect. And then somehow I just uh, entered that area before the boom of generative AI. So this is a really exciting time to do research in this domain. Yeah, it is uh, also stressful, but yeah, you see how now like the general public is actually using AI instead of before it's more for the researchers or computer scientists. And that's the interesting part because then you see all different kinds of behaviors and different ways of using them. And there's more ethical questions emerging and you can also see how aesthetic might be influenced by AI. So it's indeed a really good moment. You have a really versatile background. How do you explain to someone else what you do? I think in general, I would say I'm an artist, but I'm also a designer, design researcher, probably more of a design researcher, art and art researcher. And then somewhere in between art and science and design. And then I have a few major tracks of my practice. One major track of practice is more of how human relationship towards the nature, but mostly invisible things. Uh, so like microbes or molecular interactions. So I'm also interested in physics. And then another aspect is I'm interested in the emotion part. So emotion in the relation with language. So I also have a track that I develop personalized language. How do we connect our emotion with mixture of languages and cultures? And then there's also the computational part, like programming, generative art, and then how does all these kind of more algorithmic aspects also combine with the rest of the other topics. So I would say somewhere in between art and science. And not so like I'm not an artist by training. So I would say my roots is always in the science. You are a practicing designer and artist. And while there's an overlap, there are very distinct differences as well. What I'm curious about is what do you think can art learn from design and design learn from art? Well, actually, if looking at the project, there's always the artistic part and there's the design part. I think in the artistic part, it's more what's the right word, making an emphasis and also make it as a glory of glorifying the emotional, cultural and irrational part. And sometimes you can be more, more subjective, which every subjective opinion is being valued. And then in design is a little bit more rational and design tends to look a little bit more methodologically. So it would become a certain kind of process that you would be able to engage others in your process as well, or that process maybe become a methodology that others can use as well. So I think 
positioning wise design is a little bit closer to the science practice. Even though there is also like I think in general in the Netherlands the design is still vaguely separate into two fields like the design research and the practice based design, and practice based design is really close to art as well, but. Fundamentally, there is slightly that difference, and then I think also art has more of the performative part because it has a long culture that related with theater, literature, music, and more also time-based things, and where design is more artifact-related, so more objects, more materiality. And more, I think in design it talks about more of the usage of things and people's interaction with that. So that's why I can sort of navigate and knowing like at which point should I、uh, more taking the heritage of、uh, art practice or the heritage of a、uh, design practice、uh, when working on the projects. You describe the multiplex of domains that your projects cover. Can you try to describe your work to those people who cannot see it? Well, I have so many works, <laughs> but so one track is the viruses, and I try to create different relationship with viruses, dealing with this topic around human virus relationship for a little bit more than ten years, I think around twelve. Maybe thirteen years now, and it goes from trying to treat the viruses as disease and looking at our how our relationship with the virus would be redefined if we have to reveal whether we have the newest vaccination and by having the cereal sort of grown on your skin and become a makeup. So that's more of、um, I have some images and scenarios around that project to investigate the possibility. Then to the project that brought me to the Netherlands, which I was suggesting that we can try to tame the virus, and that was all before COVID, where we were dealing with norovirus, which is the virus that makes you puke and diarrhea. And along with that project, you can the, the manifesto of how human should consider the relationship with the virus differently. And there were like movements that you can train your body to move in the right way. There was a dance that explores if that movement are composed of your physicality, then how would you move differently? And then there was also a tea that you can make yourself adopt the puking and diarrhea sensation. So then you can be prepared, and then you can sort of vaccinate, gain the immunity through getting infected. And then it's a project with a lot of different things. And then there's a game that is a board game that you can play as a strategy to know how,、uh, with different strategy, that you can live with the viruses. So you maintain the virus still living in the environment, so you still get the newest update, but at the same time, the vulnerable will be protected. So that's a project that with very different objects, and then I have the virophilia, which is a little bit come afterwards, which is a cookbook, and then it has recipes that suggest you can use different ways of using viruses in cuisines. So, for example, 
You could use viruses to change the texture of a living thing while they are growing, and then you can have a different kind of like interesting texture vegetables. Or you can also eat the viruses as a oral vaccine, and then you will have the immune response to it, which adds on the dining experience. And that is being exhibited. As video work in the space, as installations with the pages from the cookbook, and the cookbook is actually looking back from the future, like from twenty sixty eight, at the history of human virus cuisine development, and then it's also performed as a dinner performance where I collaborate with different chefs around the world. Once we did it as a food delivery during COVID, so the performance was done on the video where everyone got their food at home and they can open it and eat it. And after that, I had during the COVID, I had a project where I'm trying to really bring the physicality of how viruses replicate in our body, the coronavirus, into something that we can embody and understand. So it's actually a knitting project that you can knit the coronavirus proteins. Where that's the protein that combined with our cell that become a key, and it will opens up the cell so the virus can enter the cell and start replicating. So I have the protein structure translated into knitting structure because that looks like the molecular movement of how the proteins are being translated in the cell. And then we gather online every two weeks and talk about the topics that we want to talk about around COVID. Like how we felt when the vaccination was just starting. How do we miss the airport and the experience of traveling?、Uh, how do we enjoy or not enjoy the self quarantine time? And how does it feel when you got sick? Those kind of issues, and then it turns into installation. That also part of it. I collaborate with the textile museum in Tilburg. That、uh, we also knitted the membrane of the virus, and then I have a performer dancing with that structure where she becomes the mechanism in the cell, embody herself as the、um, this molecular force within the cell interactions, and then slowly turning herself into coronavirus by wrapping herself in that membrane, like how we、uh, wrap the virus in a membrane in the cell. To finish the last process of the production of the virus before the virus leaves the cell, and then it was also、um, done as a performance in Taiwan twice. One during the COVID time, when I have the musician act as the shaman and、uh, play the music and the ritual with the whole installation as a big. Big、uh, installation, actually, like about one hundred twenty in diameter of the size of the virus body, and the protein also extended into the space in a space about maybe six meters times six meters times four meters, and then the second, well, the third performance was done in a greenhouse-like environment in Yangming Mountain. And then the musician becomes not dressed as a shaman, but like a normal person, and play with the virus. 
And then I also try to analyze my for the other project. I also try to analyze my genomic sequence to look for the traces of viruses in there. And then did an embroidery project that was soaked in my own blood, with the note of what kind of viruses was identified through my genome. And those threads that I use and the yarns that I use was similar, exactly the same yarns that I used to knit the coronavirus. It just to look at our combination with the virus, and then it's accompanied with a video that runs through the whole human genome, which takes about thirty minutes. But like I think. Fifteen frames per second, and marking all the possible identified virus origin genomes in there, which you can actually see a great video with red flashing all the time, and realizing that there's much more viruses in our body than expected. So that's sort of my virus、uh, series, and I also make sex toys for plants, where you can see. Some objects that are installed on the plants, but it was more a thought experiment of thinking: How can we actually imagine and think on the plants' behalf? Is it possible or not possible? And there is also another project that I was trying to grow microbes from the soil as my ink. Then I have a three D printer that can print the idealistic structure of the universe from string theory. Using those microbes as inks, and the microbes will grow again. So I'm creating a small universe that's being reorganized by human, but then they grow themselves. So you actually see the petri dishes with colorful microbe dots in a structural way, but then they also have their own interaction with things. So sometimes certain space will become empty, or you also see the color overlapping, like image. And also the languages that I interview people who are multilingual, where they usually know more than four languages, and they construct their own monologue where they translate each word into different language, and then they modify the whole monologue using the grammar that they think it works in there, and then they perform it. So. In the video, you will see them talking in a language that sounds familiar, but maybe not. Um, but then you sort of also get what they are saying as a way to、uh, have the greatest emotional relation for the speaker towards the monologue through language. So that's basically why do <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> Talking about the right timing, not only is AI a very hot topic, but viruses have been in a global spotlight, of course, since COVID as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I don't know what happened. Maybe it's just like. Luck. <laughs> I have a small favor to ask that will make a big impact. The last supper is offered to you at zero cost, and if you like this show about art in Asia, give this podcast a star rating or subscribe to this podcast channel. Many thanks, and let's continue. Now let's talk more about your projects. You already mentioned some of them. And some of the titles are really very intriguing. Let's begin with Project Studies of Interbeing Pedigree X. This title could have come straight from X Files, but what can you tell me about this project, Studies of Interbeing Pedigree X? 
Okay, so that was、uh, the project that I just mentioned, where I try to examine my whole genome sequencing and see if there are any origin of viruses in there. Well, so for all my virus practice, I'm trying to investigate a different relationship between human and viruses, and somehow we get closer and then closer and then closer. So the first place I was looking at viruses as disease, so it's an enemy relationship with virus. But as I get closer, like for example, eating viruses. Or trying to knit the coronavirus and become the coronavirus, the distance is much more integrated. But then in this process, I also came across the information that the forming of human placenta is came from this gene that's called syncytin, and syncytin is actually a virus origin. That virus entered the development of mammals. Entered the development of mammals twice. So I think human and dogs have actually a different syncytin gene. I might be wrong, but there's at least twice, and that's by、uh, happening through potentially that scientists are speculating now through a viral infection. That allows the cells to merge together and then forming the placenta structure, which means without that virus being there or that viral origin genome, there's no mammals. And that also led me to look at other similar viruses. So there's this category that's called endogenome virus, and it's one of it. And then I was like. Thinking there's no way that you can get any closer with viruses than this, and there is something there to acknowledge that we are also sort of viruses is an interesting way. Of course, we don't act that like viruses, but if you really look at the, the very genome theories that says if you are genetically related, then you have relationship, like. Then that means we also sort of had that genetic relationship with the viruses, and it's also really interesting that it passed down through generations. So if one of your ancestors got infected by one of the virus, then you might also see that trait in your own genome. So that's the pedigree, how that came from, and it's also interesting on another aspect that in the process of trying to analyze my genome. Which is like about forty gigabytes of data, and that's like really crazy. So I have wonderful scientists helping me to do that, and they thought that it won't be as interesting if we are not finding something new in there. So they did this、um, search for other possible virus genome in my genome, and they have discovered several ones. And there are some interesting ones, such as hepatitis B originated genome. There's also HIV originated genome. So a lot of them were related with some kind of diseases. Which at the same time, I did all the tests, and I know I don't have those viruses on me. So it start to open up the imaginative space of like, is it because we? Look at viruses and the research into virus because we always start with something that's disease. Like for example, of the first 
HIV-like virus are being discovered by studying the AIDS patients. But there are some other retroviruses that are similar to it and might not cause any diseases, but we still call it like HIV-related viruses. And also, could it be like one of my ancestors had some kind of infection that perhaps had some disease-like symptoms, but then as it passed down the generations, those characteristics disappear, so it still stay in my genome. Or would I have encountered, I forgot the name, but then it's one of the diseases that's usually on the cat. And uh, Would I have that one because I have been living in a house that has a cat? So it really tells an interesting history where you start to wander through your genome as if it's a written book that how of these genome came about. And uh, so yeah, that was the the Pedigree X project. And I also want to try to express that shock when I first realized how many viruses origin genome there are in our genome by marking those viral origin sequences in red and have the video to run through the whole genome because the frequency of red appearing is almost like every second and out of that 30 minutes which before i render it i would thought that well maybe like once in a few minutes and then probably some people would think that it would be never read. That shock and knowing that how close we are and how we are connected through the molecular space is really interesting. And yeah, so that's basically an investigation into that kind of relationship through genome. When you talk about a virus, how would you describe what it is? With my really limited knowledge, is a virus always a hostile agent or in what context do I need to see what a virus is? Yes, no. Uh, so I, I think, but I, I'm also not a scientist, so I'm repeating what I hear from the scientist. I once talked with a virologist who is studying plant virology, and he said that that conversation happened about five years ago. So I would say it's changed a bit. But he was uh, saying we probably only know maximum about 10% of the viruses that exist in this world. And, and he thinks, actually, other, also other virologists also think that most of the viruses are actually forming a mutual beneficial relationship with their host. It's just that we haven't studied them. So replying directly to your question, are they hostile? I think we only pay attention or we are only able to pay attention to those that are hostile at the moment. But as the technology is developing faster, there is the area that's called metagenomics, which you are able to sample a whole collection of like a soup, basically, like you can grab a cup of water and then just analyze what are the genomes in there. And with that method, they're able to identify much more viruses that has a mutual beneficial relationship because then 
you don't start with a phenomenon. You don't start with a sickness to discover it. So the speed that we are now discovering the beneficial viruses are much faster than before. The very beginning of a viral study in early twentieth century, like around nineteen ten ish, was indeed through diseases, and I think that's why. We have the idea that viruses are hostile, and that also is where the word virus came from. Another term you have used a few times is genome, and I want to make sure that I understand this correctly, or that we are talking about the same thing. Is it fair to say that the genome is a basically a full set of DNA instructions found in a single cell? So genome, in a way. That's mostly the DNA, which is the ATCG thing that some people might heard of, and sometimes it's in the RNA form, which is slightly different. But it basically is a sequence that remembers or records or contains the information of a combination of ATCGs, and those ATCGs are being Able to provide the cell mechanisms to translate it into proteins, where proteins are actually the structural elements within the cell that are able to perform things. So, for example, moving things or transporting things, becoming enzymes that cut up other things. So, all these kind of things that has activities are mostly. Based on proteins, and their information are stored in the RNA or DNA form. So once in the past, now it's debatable or not debatable. There are more evidence discovered that is more than that. But the typical image that people would have around genome is that the genome contains all the information of how and a biological entity can be constructed. Even though it's much more than that, but you can say that it contains most of the information, and with that genome, you can more or less guess to some extent how that entity looks like because it indicates what kind of proteins there are and how they can be constructed together. Another project that you did before studies of interbeing pedigree X was studies of interbeing. Trans one to one. What were you investigating in this project? Trans one to one. So for that one, it's the one where I translate the sequences into the coronavirus spike protein sequence into knitting patterns and for people to knit. And that was developed during the COVID time. When COVID happened, and because I have spent a lot of time with viruses. It was a little bit strange to me, in a way, by seeing how viruses are being portrayed as something that is composed of a gray and red element on the imagery, and that is only scary. I know Corona back then was scary indeed, but not all the viruses. And then, for how much I know about the virus and observing what. Others were reacting to those informations. I see a huge difference of fear 
like for those who know less about biology, has much more fear towards that because they lack the tangible physical concept or knowledge. I won't say knowledge, but more like the image, like the lack of its physicality information, to be a little bit more confident about their own、uh, movement through the space in the public, because they cannot imagine how close they are, and they also become super scared if they got sick, which is a little bit way too much than. The sickness itself. Sometimes I know the sickness is also really horrible, but then some people feel like it's the end of the world. But it doesn't happen for everyone. Like some of them still recover. So I think that fear between the imaginative space from the information that's being provided versus what's actually happening in the body, or you're fearing that. At a certain point, it will enter your body without you knowing it, and everybody, every day you are in that fear, is something that perhaps R is capable of providing some possibilities. You said that knitting was part of this project, and participants were knitting something. Can you speak more about knitting and the significance of this? Okay, so actually, two things. The knitting part is because I was looking at, well, or put it more personal way, when the COVID was happening, one of the things that gave me comfort was actually knowing that how the ribosomes were translating the RNA into proteins in the cell as the process of production of the virus. I know it's strange, but I have a biology background, so I sort of like by able to envision it. It brings a little bit more comfort of what might be happening in my body, and it actually looks like knitting because you are basically making a long chain of things, and that long chain of things, which is the amino acids polymers. It's similar to yarns, and as it forms that long chain, also forms the structure. So I thought it might be a good way to bring that physicality to people, and at the same time, the project has the shamanism element in there. Also, partly because of my past experience、uh, working the lab, that I always find trying to work with something that's invisible is very meditative. Because at the same time, you have to imagine what's happening because you cannot see it, but then you also are. Having a physical manipulation or interaction with those things, and then at the same time, if you look at shaman, when there weren't modern science or modern science tools available, there are also the frontier that talks to the diseases. So, in a way, I see the similarities between the scientist who works with viruses. And the shaman, as if the they're the shaman of nowadays. That's based on what we know now, and you can also say that the, a lot of the shaman practice originated also very closely related with what people knew back then. So that's the shamanism aspect that came in, and I was also looking for possible methods that. 
will engage in this flow of emotions, and out of all different kind of shaman practice in the world, you also see some commons. So there are some ways, some practices that are able to connect you emotionally and subconsciously with the external world more. So I'm trying to implement all these bit by bit as an experiment in a way because I also didn't know what's the right composition when I started. So it's a trial and error, and to construct the whole project that I was. Hoping that for whoever joining the project will find a bit of comfort in there that they can then start to talk to viruses instead of just afraid of it. And even though it's a fearful one, but I think we still need a bit of space that we are not that afraid of it. I may have missed it, but is it fair to say that the subject you are trying to address and you are trying to show is that viruses are complex and that not all viruses are hostile? So, when did this fascination with viruses begin, and what questions are you trying to address through your projects? Yeah, well, to be really, really honest, like it started, I was just attracted by all the issues that related with viruses. In my childhood, and then R became a really good method or a really good area because it's very tolerant of different methods. That R become a really good area to explore all the possibilities and to ask the questions that sometimes you shouldn't ask in science. That's how he how it grew from, and because I think I was originally already attracted by the complexity that. Emerge through the human virus interactions, and I didn't know that it was so complex. It's much more complex than I have in mind ten years ago. It was much more of a simpler relationship I had envisioned before. So the complexity wasn't intentional, but it was like I think I'm just attracted by everything that are complex. So right now, I'm also looking into complex systems, how simple things can come together and have new characteristic emerges. But at the same time, also because viruses is a very shared experience between every single person. Like there's no one in this world that have never been sick. So it also brings a very Nice link of the embodiment experience for everyone, and it's also really rich. So I think that's the reason why I never leave that field, and it just bring more and more things. And then also because viruses are that like bacteria, I think viruses are actually more neutral than bacteria, in the sense that they are. Not really living in the biological definition. If it's floating in the air, outside biological being, like something that can replicate themselves, if we p- define the biological being as this, 
if the viruses are floating outside, it's unable to replicate themselves, and it will only become animated, activated when it enters the host. So that duality is really interesting, and at the same time, at the cultural level, you also see the viruses sort of like a mirror, because it just infects everyone. It doesn't really care about any cultural constructions when the infection is happening, but then all the infections are closely related with. Every single bit of the cultural construct and the societal structure. So I like to always refer to it as a mirror that will make us to reflect on ourselves and reflect other aspects. Do you believe there are more viruses than, let's say, a hundred years ago, or are we just more aware of the variety of viruses because of the advancements we have made? Well, that's also. Really, really interesting. If you really looked in depth, also、um, I have to say again, I'm not a scientist. So I also hear it from another scientist who was commenting on the coronavirus development that a lot of、uh, scientists were surprised by how fast it evolved. But then, if you look at the whole world. It's also the first time that the humanity were trying to encounter and react to a sickness or virus infection in such a way that are so global, so structural, and that didn't end up with killing intentionally a massive group of people, or ended up with some kind of war. So. In a way, you can also say that our way of responding to that also has much more complexity than before because the tools that we have developed, the technology that we are able to use now. So, I don't know if there's a way to really calculate the complexity, but it is indeed very different from say a hundred years ago or two hundred years ago when they only knew. A little bit about vaccination, and they knew that it spread. So you need to separate the sickness and the healthy ones, even in the way you walk. Like you need to plan different routes for different people. That was a, a record from the the palace in China in Beijing. That how they deal with it in the Qing Dynasty. That they actually plan the route for. The transportation of the dead, that only those are sick can walk that route. So there were that kind of、uh, quarantine methods already, but never like how we did in the past few years. Let's talk about another project and subject that you have an interest in, and that is artificial intelligence. I am by no means an expert in biological viruses. However, there is a parallel with AI and software development in that the combination of AI and machine learning, we have come to a point, or maybe we have already reached it, where software can self-replicate itself and adapt to its environment, similar to a biological virus. Is that a fair comparison? Well, so actually, I find the biological connotation. 
works really well to look at AI. I have an ongoing project, haven't finished yet,、uh, where I'm collaborating with a computer science background professor in Eindhoven University of Technology. That right now we are hunting for AI beasts, and that means it's called more coming from the concept of if you ask a non-science background person what is an AI. You will see the people generally has a concept of the AI algorithm itself, plus the dataset, plus the products that is being generated by AI or being managed by AI, plus the community that use it. So, take it for example, Midjourney has a very different community from the people who use ChatGPT, and then with Stable Diffusion, which is a, which is an open source. Algorithm and software, in a way, you also see a huge community trying to optimize it using the LoRa model for optimizing the calculation or the generation of hands of certain body parts, certain kind. Of- Sorry to interrupt, but what is a LoRa computer model? So it's a a LoRa model. Well, it's something that's a small algorithm that adds on. Stable diffusion that will allows you to train certain things with a very small amount of data. So you need like ten to hundred, for example. And one of the example is that if you want to make stable diffusion able to generate the face of Harry Potter, and with that add-on, you just need maybe a hundred image of Harry Potter, and then you can prove. Harry Potter in the prompt, then the generated image will be very specialized and very capable of generating different Harry Potters in different postures, costumes, or all kind of things. So that's being also widely used for pornography because you then can get a very small amount of data and to generate certain things that you want for other purposes. And so these communities are. You can see what's happening is that you cannot just say stable diffusion plus LoRa is one type one AI from the human world, the general public's perspective. Because from the general public's perspective, they would think that it's a different thing. For one that enters the prompt, I'm really good at generating certain body parts for the porn. Versus something that would generate really good textile fabric materiality. So we are trying to look at at hunt for different AI beasts where we develop templates that you can try to record it, and it includes like what are the embodiment of this beast, what are their companion, what are their biological characteristic. And then we want to build a taxonomy from there because taxonomy is a system how human try to identify the crucial characteristic and see their connections. So it also reflects the human perspective of how we see each thing is important or not. And we are also debating more the philosophical question of how do you see one AI in the conscious. That is one AI. Is it just the dataset, or the dataset plus the algorithm, or the dataset plus the algorithm plus the community? 
and we also see a lot of interesting relationship. Like for example, probably everyone knows AlphaGo, which is the AI that beats the human Go player years ago, and it was first camouflage as a user on the internet. Nobody knows that it's actually a machine behind it. Um, beaten old. Of the best world players, and then they have a physical competition where a scientist was placing the gold stones on the board for the computer. So the the scientists become the embodiment of the AI, and now the gold players in each countries are training closely with the AI. So the AI also contributes to their achievement. And they also contribute back to the algorithm itself. So there's a companionship between human and AI, and so I think the similarity between viruses and AI in this aspect is that they are all sort of kind of mirror, and that mirrors different layers of things. So the first layer of mirroring is that the AI is really good at replicating biases that we have in the human world because. It largely trains on the data that we have, so it is able to emphasize how, as a whole, of a community of humans that we see things. But at the same time, it also allows others to express themselves better. So through that expression, you see the different aspect of people like. They can be people who are using the stable diffusion to generate children pornography, so that's really horrible. But at the same time, you can also have people who generate illustration books, wonderful science fiction novels, or you know all different kind of things for that. So that also reflects their users, and. You can also see it's provoking certain controversial questions to let us resent the ethical issues like copyrights, ownership, authorship, and our concept of aesthetics. So I think AI has that power, and because it's also like very actively responds to our actions. And so, in a way, also bring us into this very reflective moment. Like for the COVID, we were reflecting on our relationship with the world, and now the AI、uh, singularity is bringing us to think about our relationship with data, with digitalization, and、uh, digital ethics. If I'm not mistaken, you refer to something quite profound. You talked about the question of what constitutes consciousness, and I am paraphrasing what I recall. What you just said is that it is data set, algorithm, and community. Can you speak more about this? Okay, so basically, all the algorithms they are just mathematics, and these mathematics. Allows us to make sense of the data, but that also means that if you imagine, like if I try to describe that, which we call latent space, in more the visual way, you can see that the mathematic equations are able to treat those data sets as clouds in a space. So you got like they a million different datasets, and then you extract the concepts in there, and then you see okay here, 
in one position there is a concept about say people wearing gloves. There is another cloud. There are people who hold lollipops, and then some other concepts in there as well. And then the AI will be able to generate new things from the combination of these concepts or certain concepts within that. So imagine that the last examples I was、uh, giving was using people having different things in their hands, right, with gloves or lollipops. But if you feed in a million data in there, there are all dogs. Then of course there's no data about people holding lollipops or having gloves, but a lot of dogs. Then the generated result will be completely different because what should be occupying by the same command. So the space that should be occupying human with gloves is empty. So if you give the generative AI a prompt and ask it to generate human with gloves, but it only has the data of dogs, it will still try to generate something. But it might generate I don't know a dog with something strange. On it, which happens a lot, and that's the power of different datasets. When you feed different things into it, you'll have different results. So there's one example early when、uh, Midjourney just came out. I think someone generated a lot of American Indian or the right word, the uh, American uh, indigenous people smiling, but all of those faces were having this very American white smile. Which is also really weird, because there's no data for that, and it's trying to create something as a composition of those. And because our datasets are, in a way, missing a lot of data from the indigenous people, so then we have this really weird result, and that's when the dataset is biased. You also see it reflected on algorithms. But general public doesn't really care, like, or they don't know about the complexity in there, so they would、uh, accept it as it is. Then it becomes a very different one by their perception because they were referred to say algorithm A is different from algorithm B because algorithm A can generate human and human wearing gloves. Algorithm B is only able to generate things that are dogs. You are for sure stretching my knowledge and understanding of this domain. So let me know if this does not make any sense. What I understand, what you are saying is that the computer model we have now can only respond to what it is being fed. If there's any new data that is not part of its depository, it won't know what to do with it, and it creates these kind of hallucinations. Whereas the human brain can make really quick correlations and sense between new information and established knowledge. Is that a fair description? No, and just trying to create something. So you can see it from ChatGPT. Like if you ask it to generate something that it doesn't know, it just like. Give you some rubbish thing, which sometimes are really interesting, and they call it hallucination. And what I understand is that general 
intelligence, and that is that we as humans have a capacity and skill or skills to understand many different domains, whereas artificial intelligence currently is very narrow and specific, especially at mathematical processing. What do you believe the future will hold? Of course, we don't know what the future will hold, but as a just thought experiment, do you believe that we can develop computers that have the ability for general intelligence as well? I don't know, because... Every day, the AI news is shocking me. So I really don't know. So you feel as well that the development of this goes a lot faster than you expect? Yes. Yes, I think so. Like, yeah, it's getting faster and faster. And you also do wonder about what are those tech companies have without telling everyone. So I don't know what they are developing right now. But also at the same time, the human will be changed because of these technologies as well. So is this something that we have to be afraid of? I'm not sure. Because we also change. And will we become something new that we won't be able to afraid of it? I don't know. Yeah, I guess it's quite hard to predict what the future will hold. But what if I reframe the question? Do you believe that computers will make us smarter? Will they, the computers and algorithms, push our thinking and therefore our general intelligence and our higher order of cognition becomes better as well? Definitely, because... uh In a way, there is a term in computer science that's called the augmented intelligence. And one of the uh, first example is a pen. So once you have a pen, then you are able to write down and remember what you've said and what you thought of. And that brings extra layer of our connective power. Then with the AIs are also sort of within the same domain. So right now I'm exploring how with very, very simple generative algorithms, so more the evolutionary algorithms, that you could generate knitting patterns that will allows you to create textiles that you have never imagined, which is working quite well. And in this context, the human is in the position that's hugely benefited from what's being generated by AI and able to explore the space that you won't come to that fast. So it's like a really, a really powerful partner to work with. And you also have the space of not needing to accept its opinions of the time and then you need to learn the language to communicate with it so it's very much like a partnership instead of uh, i know one of the popular um, argument is that the ai is going to take over the jobs that we currently have but there's also the debate on whether we can then um, give it 
the more laborsome task and be more give ourselves more time to be creative. I I really don't know what's the answer whether to be afraid of or not because really I'm I don't work for Google or OpenAI so I don't know what's hidden in there. But from what's available right now, I see that potential and the possibility. This is such an amazing conversation, and I know you also have an interest in emotions, which you mentioned at the start. So I wish that we could talk more because I'm fascinated by how emotions emerge as well.、Uh, you may be aware of Lisa. Feldman Barrett, who has done some amazing work around、uh, this, and her theories have really changed how we, or at least how I think about emotions. But I'm going to ask you the final question of today's episode of the Last Supper. What if you were to have your last meal? Who would you invite, and what would you talk about at your final dinner? I have a question. So, what happened after the last meal? What's the scenario of that? Well, that depends on whether you believe death is the final frontier, or if there is some kind of afterlife. I, I mean, you could also have the last meal, and then you just keep on not eating forever, and there is nothing happening in the world. Versus, like、uh, I don't know, a comet hits the Earth. I'm not sure.、Uh, so I don't really have a name in my mind right now. But because it's a comet hitting the Earth, I might want to talk to someone who is a, I think it's called paleologist, like people who study the fossils and the geographical, a、uh, geological、um, space,、uh, or some scientist who is in the、uh, high energy physics field. Because then it's interesting to know about the where does all all the molecules goes afterwards and where is the origin of it. It's always nice.、Um, and if I can talk to someone who is already dead, maybe it might be fun to talk to、uh, Isaac Asimov. Yeah,、uh, just because also his imagination goes beyond the. Planet itself. Thank you, Peiying, for your time today. I learned a lot more about viruses and AI. All the best with your completion of your PhD study, and hope to see you when I'm back in Holland. Thank you. Many thanks for listening to today's episode of the Last Supper with artist and designer Ling Peiying. If you like this show about art in Asia, you can support us by giving this episode a star rating and subscribing to this podcast. If you have any questions, suggestions, or wish to participate in this podcast, you can contact me on Oscar at thelastsupper.asia. You can visit my website www.thelastsupper.asia as well, or contact me direct on Instagram at thelastsupper.asia.